0: You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music. I'm your host, Brent Simmons. On the line with me today is Dr. Lyle Skaines. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? That
1: is correct. It's absolutely phonetic.
0: All right. Well, say hello, Lyle.
2: Hello, Lyle.
0: My co-host today is Annette Fuller. Say hello, Annette.
2: Hello, Annette.
0: So, uh, Dr. Lyle, um, (laughs) what kind of work do you do?
1: I am what I like to call a practitioner researcher in digital writing and multimodal creativity, which is a lot of words to say that the university pays me to do really cool stuff creating stories in digital media and interactive spaces. And then I write up some research on how it went, how it changes the process of writing, how it affects creativity, how it affects how I think about story, about how audiences interact with these kinds of stories and what we can do with them. Oh, that's cool. That's a lot of words for what I do. But,
0: uh huh. All right. And you're, <laughs> at the, that's,
1: uh, my forte. you're
0: at the University of Bangor in Wales.
1: Uh not anymore. I have just oh. transferred universities. I am as of January, <laughs> I am at Manchester Metropolitan University.
0: And I assume that's in Manchester.
1: So a slight shift. Yeah, it is in Manchester. <laughs> okay. I still live in North Wales though.
0: Oh, okay. So that was a lot of words. Um can you tell me a little <laughs> bit more about uh, what these kind of different storytelling modes are like these different experiences? I'm very curious.
1: Okay. So well, my PhD work, which is a few years ago now, I was looking at different types of digital fiction. And this, this is a term that most people don't really know, digital fiction. When I say digital fiction, a lot of people go, oh, you mean like ebooks? And that's not really it. It's more stories that require a digital device to interact with. So, like, I would class walking sims, like uh, you know, everybody's gone to the rapture and the Stanley Parable uh, and things like that, as digital fiction. They're stories, and you've got to kind of interact with them to go through. And we have these kinds of stories all the way from hypertext stories from the old school days of text adventure games. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, if you think about Zork and. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all of those were sort of the early precursor to both video games and to digital fiction. And in fact, they are that type of story is still one of the most prominent stories in digital fiction, and we now call it interactive fiction or text adventure games. But they are still incredibly popular, just not as commercial as they used to be back in the 70s and 80s.
0: My mom bought me a copy of Zork the day it came out.
1: That's awesome.
0: <laughs> I, I, lo- I I loved that game so much. Yeah. One
1: of my favorite stories from my PhD was that my supervisor, I was I was working in my office and I'm sure I was researching or reading something, and my supervisor called down and she said, you know, I have to give a lecture on Zork in, you know, two hours time and I can't get past the the troll, I can't I can't get past the, the Gru, and and she said I need you. Will you go and get past the Gru and tell me how you did it so that I can give this lecture? And I went, yes, I will absolutely drop everything that I'm doing right now and go and play Zork so, to tell you how to
2: get past the Gru. <laughs> That's a pretty good job if you get to do that at work.
1: Yeah, it's it's not too shabby. I mean, it's it's not all fun and games, unfortunately, but a lot of it is.
0: So what are you learning? What is the effect on audiences and on creativity
1: in terms of creativity the the creation space of digital fiction and games and these interactive immersive experiences like because there's lots of in-person stuff now as well locative experiences is that unlike when you're writing a prose text where you have you know if you're writing long hands you've got a, a pen and paper or you might have a, a word processor, you know, you're writing in Microsoft Word, you've got one space in which you're writing and creating this story usually. And you can just sort of sit down at it and go. And with digital spaces, you've got multiple spaces. So you may be writing in HTML, you might be writing some prose, you might be working with video, you might be working with animated GIFs, you might be doing all these different sorts of things. And so you've got this sort of all these different tools that you're split between. And so it fragments the way that you think about story. And we get to where we have a lot of different what we in, in narratology studies call unnatural narrative, where the story fragments, you no longer have one perspective, you no longer have one protagonist or one character that you're following because you're composing in these different spaces. And so the story takes shape in lots of different ways. And that's one of the most intriguing things to me because it, it says that it's going to change our stories. It's going to change what we're used to experiencing If you think about a book or a movie, they've been, you know, the way that they are, that you go through them one way. Whereas with digital text, games and digital fiction, I could have a completely different experience from you. And we're going through the same thing. So it's changing how we think about story and changing what it means to be an audience member when each story is unique to each audience member and each time they play through it. So it's, it's interesting to me, it's, it's even though it's a huge area and lots of billions of dollars being spent in the industry, that it comes down to the individual and how they think about things and, and how it affects the way they think.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I, I wonder, um, you know, today's modern life, our attention is more fragmented and it seems like we're concentrating on different small pieces of I hate the overarching word, content, but different small pieces of content here, there, and everywhere else. And we all have very different experiences every day. So how does this kind of experience fit in with our modern life?
1: I think it's interesting. You know, there are parallels in terms of, say, the gig economy and, you know, living in different spaces and and being different people in different spaces I mean, we we fall into this fallacy of thinking that just because it's digital, it's new or it's introducing new things. When as humans, what we actually like to do with new things is then convert them back to familiar ways of doing things. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, we have all this amazing new technology. And what do we do? We sit around and we binge watch Netflix. I mean, we literally just (laughs) sit. (laughs) And watch a story for hours and hours and hours. So, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering. You know, there was fear mongering in the 90s about, oh, the death of the book. uh, Mm. Which, you know, or whatever it is that the digital media, you know, video killed the radio star, whatever it is. And so we always have a fear of the new and and, and a nostalgia for the old. And interestingly, we just keep finding ways to reinvent the old stuff. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've had a very fragmented Attention, and, and we've always had this sort of dialogue, this about, you know, oh, modern living, it's, it's killing the way we think it's, it's our, you know, our kids aren't thinking well anymore, or their attention is fragmented. We're not great with attention to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. we're, we spot patterns, we like patterns. But it, it's part of being sort of biologically human that your attention can go different places. So I think there's a little bit of, yeah, it's new and it will change some things, but I think we will keep pushing back to what we understand.
0: I can imagine a long, long time ago, first people to do uh, cave paintings, somebody complained that, hey, we have an oral tradition here. Uh, (laughs) No images, please. You're going to ruin the youth.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I have no doubt that some Old curmudgeon was there <laughs> yelling at the kids with their finger paints. Could
0: have, could have been me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a long standing narrative that uh, certain forms of storytelling that we have are dying out. The novel has been dying since almost as soon as it was introduced. And mm-hmm. there's always this new essay, new think piece on how the novel is dying. And it's still here. Absolutely,
0: you could write a book about the history of essays of About the novel dying. I think some
2: people have, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Probably. Oh, somebody did. Oh, somebody very prominent did very recently here in the UK. I want to say like Tom Wolfe. And basically I just wanted to like print out the Guardian article where he wrote it and then just throw it back at his head. Because (laughs) (laughs) I was like, come on. (laughs) Uh.
2: So in some ways, is this new mode of storytelling in digital stories, is that like hearkening back to serialized fiction where, you know, writers were paid by the word and they could see what impact their previous section had had on their audience and, you know, come at it with a a new angle, you know, the next section they were about to introduce?
1: yeah there are elements of that i love I love the notion of being paid for any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, most of it is experimental and so it gets it gets traded around um, mostly academics and or indie game developers looking to do something a little bit different but yeah I think there's there's a notion of that sort of instant feedback and and to get a feel for, for where it might go and that it's a bit fragmented. It depends on the medium in which you're working, I think. Some of the projects I've done, I've set up the coding so that I can track what gets clicked, where my audience goes, what narrative they want to follow, and that gives me information about what they're more likely to do. And actually, we've done a study with one of my pieces, where we actually sat in the room with people and asked, you know, what link are you about to click? Why are you going to click it? And then once they had clicked it, we asked them, you know, did it lead where you thought it was going to go? How do you think about it now? And it was really interesting to us because whereas a lot of people working in these areas, they want to be very poetic with it and play with aesthetics and have links that don't tell you where they're going to go. And they don't seem to have any meaning, but they have meaning for the author. There's some sort of poetic you know, pattern that, that you know most readers can't pick up on. And what we found is that readers read for the plot. They're very rarely gonna, you know, click on those random links, they, they want to find out what's happening in the story, even if they have all these choices and all these things that they can do, they really just want story. And so I think there's that harkens back to the serial storytelling, where it was just, you know, give me more story. Yes, I like that bit of story. No, I don't like that bit. And I think the the clicks on links help us do that a little bit.
2: So if there's like a cliffhanger, can you see that they click the link faster to move forward <laughs> faster? <laughs> yeah, you, you
1: can. I mean, depending on how you set it up and and web comics, uh, you know, Homestuck and, and things like that have done amazing things on that in that the story doesn't get told until the audience votes on the next bit of it. So if anybody hasn't read Homestuck, you know, go and see. I, I don't think it's still a continuing narrative. I can't remember. It's been a few years since I saw it. But Web comics are really great at this. I don't know if you know the web comic, or, which is now a hard copy comic, uh, Nimona, which no. was mm-hmm. Noelle Stevenson. You may know her from Lumberjanes and, mm-hmm. and other graphic texts. She did Nimona as her art school dissertation, and she did it online. And the brilliant thing about it was that online it had comments and everyone could comment on it similar to Homestuck everybody could comment and vote on which way it was going to go and they would contribute fan texts and songs and art and all of this on the you know as a comment on the actual text and a Tumblr like platform and when Harper Collins published it she had to take it down and so not only was the online text gone which was fine because Harper Collins reproduced that but all of the user interaction and comments and fan art was gone
0: oh, because
1: no. of that sort of copyright sort of era that we're still in. But yeah, there's there's lots of there's so much different digital fiction that it's really hard to to say that one type does one thing or or digital fiction does this, because basically if it, it has a narrative and it involves digitality in some way or another it it falls under digital fiction
0: what sparked your interest in digital fiction as opposed to you know novels short stories uh, Um, or traditional forms
1: i am a a prose writer you know from the time i was a kid and i think that when so the reason that i'm in the uk and no longer in california is that my partner got a, a job out here and i was languishing and bored with the, the writing gig that I had. It was a technical writing gig. When I looked at the university where he'd gotten a job, it, they had a creative writing PhD program, which at the time there weren't any in the States. Mm. And it intrigued me to be able to do some sort of research aspect. And actually the university had two different programs. One was very traditional creative writing sort of thing, write a novel, write some reflection on what you did to write the novel and, and that's research. And that didn't intrigue me much. I'd done my MFA. I'd done that sort of thing. It it wasn't that interesting, but the other department was an interdisciplinary department with media and game studies and film and journalism and digital media and all this sort of stuff. And it really intrigued me where, narrative might be going in these different media that I hadn't considered, particularly games, as the reader was so involved. And so that's where I sort of started. And then my the supervisor that I chose introduced me to digital fiction and I was absolutely hooked.
0: Suddenly I'm thinking of Lori Anderson. Do you remember Lori Anderson?
1: Um give me a context because right now I'm picturing a very blonde
0: actress Okay, she she was a musician and she did um, hard to describe, very kind of multimedia. Uh, William S. Burroughs inspired. Oh, okay, kind of concerts. She did a song uh, "Languages of Virus from Outer Space." Um, oh, cool, cool! Oh, Superman, some other stuff.
2: I'm terrible with music.
0: Oh, okay. I'm yeah. the
2: same. It must be a writer thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's <maybe. laughs> not true. I know a lot of writers who are good with music. Yeah.
0: Anyway, not that I'm going anywhere with that. I just she just popped into my head as an early person pushing, um, multimedia into, uh, into music. Mm, Yeah. Anyway.
1: A little bit like nine inch nails was one of the first to do streaming music.
0: Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you use OmniOutliner in, in all this work? I I imagine a lot of it is, um, used for your research, bibliographies, notes, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So contrary to the sort of perception of both, creative writers, and artists, and Aquarians, which I am one,
0: Mm.
1: I am sort of exceedingly anal retentive, and I must plan everything that I do. And I really, really like hierarchical organization. And so yeah, I use it for my research, my research notes, I've used it uh, extensively for the creative project that I'm working on now which involves seven different stories across seven different timelines. Mm. Wow. And so it's been really helpful to me there to be able to, to pop back and forth and to be able to see, oh, okay, yeah, this is what's happening on that timeline. But I love being able to outline either a creative text or outline a research paper or book or idea or conference paper and have them all in, this, all in one place and have – every research resource that I have ever taken notes on all in one file and I can move through it. It's my massive bibliography and I can tag things and be able to search my bibliography for keywords and know that, you know, I've done some of this research already and I can mm-hmm. draw on that for new things. So it's, it's endlessly useful to me. And I also use it in teaching. I don't use PowerPoint. I export my lecture notes to HTML and I lecture from that. Oh, so
0: cool!
1: I use it across lots of different things.
0: I love that combination of hierarchy and searchability. Um, yeah, I use Omni Outliner a ton. I I used it for years even before joining Omni. So yeah, <laughs> it's great for that.
1: Drink the Kool Aid.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, before <laughs> I even ever thought of working here. Yeah, I love that you do your lectures from HTML instead of. Uh, PowerPoint or Keynote or something like that. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I think
2: your students probably appreciate the hierarchical pattern to the lecture notes as well, because it's so much easier to take notes when you can see the structure that you are taking those notes on. You know, how much longer is this particular section of the lecture going to go on? So do I do a page or half a page? And uh, being able to convey that with just the hierarchy of your lecture notes is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's handy because, I mean, I already think in that outline. And so the fact that I can make those notes, and I can keep hidden notes from, you know, whatever text I've read, uh, I don't necessarily have to give all of that to the students, the fact that I can just pick what I'm going to export, because I give them my lecture, you know, I also post them once I've done the lecture, I put them on the, you know, the the virtual learning environment. And they've got this nice you know, HTML thing, as opposed to PowerPoint, that they can copy and paste, they can, they can, you know, I can include links, images, all these sorts of things, because I teach, you know, multimedia, the fact that I can combine all of that stuff is really handy. Yeah.
2: That's awesome. So do you use the note field for tasks to kind of hide your own notes? And then when you export, you just don't include the note field? I tend to not use the note field
1: as much. And I think this is probably an artifact of the fact that I used to use a different software that didn't have that function. And when that software went defunct, and I moved to Omni Outliner, I wasn't quite sure how to use it. But basically, I use the drop down arrows as I may need to, to be able to stick stuff in or take stuff out.
0: So as I I was reading your blog, and now we're jumping back away from Omni Outliner because I think we've really <laughs> covered that quite well.
1: There are videos on YouTube. I think that's how you all came across me to begin with was you saw screenshots yeah. of some, yeah. me replying to somebody else on Twitter about how I use it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So on your, on your blog, uh, let's see, I'll just read this quote. You write, my creative work is pedestrian. I'm good with that. I do it deliberately. I'm not a poet, lyricist, or artist. I like stories. I like stories where the writing and the form don't get in the way. I know. Why write digital fiction then? I found that quote super interesting because um, you might think that if somebody is innovating and pushing a form forward, they're doing it on all fronts. But you're deliberately trying to make stories that people relate to. That inner need to find out, oh, what's going to happen next is totally a part of it. And I I just think that's amazing. And, And wonder if you might talk yet even more about that.
1: Absolutely. You've picked my favorite topic.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I Well, first of all, I'm a strange person to have gone through creative writing programs because most creative writing programs don't allow you to do anything but literary fiction. And I fought against that in my undergrad. I fought against that in my MFA. I had to sneak genre fiction in. because (laughs) (laughs) and I had to sneak interesting forms in my my MFA um you were meant to write a novel for your final project and yet in none of your workshops were you allowed to work on that novel oh no yeah and I was I worked full-time and I was doing my MFA part-time and I was like this is insane so I, I got sneaky and wrote my novel as a series of interconnected short stories. So each chapter stood alone as a short story that I would write in my classes, in my workshops. Oh, that's
0: great. And then
1: I put them together in the end. I've been in situations where, you know, there are different departments or different instructors and, and one will say, yeah, OK, science fiction is fine. Or no, you can't do fantasy because I don't understand fantasy. And there's this classist and very gendered discussion about genre fiction and about commercial fiction and about Hollywood movies versus art movies and these sorts of things. And wouldn't you know it, humans, we like, as I said, we like to impose the same ideas on new things. There are two factions for digital fiction, and one comes from a very academic slash avant-garde realm which is that it's all experimental we shouldn't care if people like it or want to buy it we're doing it for art's sake and I sort of came in and went yeah but if I want to do this as a writer how do I make a living Mm -hmm. and you know I want something that that my mom can read and understand and look at and, and talk to people about. And to me, something doesn't really become part of culture until you pull it down and make it so that people can enjoy it and traverse it and share it. And, I mean, we revere Shakespeare, but good God, Shakespeare wrote for the people in the happy seats, you know? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was bawdy and, and ribald and you know, messy and, and sex and all that sort of stuff was happening and murder. And, um, that was Shakespeare. Uh, and so we forget about that when we sort of, you know, turn it into an art form or an academic subject or or something like that. And so what I do is I like to take these bits of digitality and, and just make the story new enough that it's it's interesting and it's fresh and it's novel, but not so much that that you sort of look at it and go, "I have no idea what's going on here," so I give up. And I think that's interesting. If you um, did, you all experience, I guess, uh, Netflix's Black Mirror episode, uh, Bandersnatch, the interactive episode.
2: No, I haven't
0: yet. Uh, Mark is nodding yes. Uh, <laughs> Annette and I haven't haven't experienced it. Uh, what did you think, Mark? Yeah. Oh, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was cool that it kind of, when you got to a certain point where the story was not going to continue and the choices you had made, it kind of rewound you to the last point where you could make a decision that was actually useful and would get you closer (laughs) to the ending that you might have wanted.
1: Yeah, so to me, that is the quintessential. So all of us who research these things and are, you know, eyeballs deep in these things all the time, we all went, well, that's nothing new. They didn't Mm -hmm. really do anything interesting there. It was actually a running joke at a lot of the academic conferences that I went to. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, for us, that's nothing new. In fact, it was so much, it wasn't even set in a modern time. It was set in the 80s, the days of the the text adventure games. And it was Mm -hmm. somebody writing a text adventure game. And it was very much a choose-your-own-adventure type thing. So it wasn't very innovative technologically or narratively, but it was a playable TV show that most people haven't experienced. There are interactive movies, but they're sold more as games. And so they're not sold on Netflix um, and and things like that. You're going to buy them on Steam or, or something like that. So most people haven't experienced that. And so what they did was they took something in a package that was completely familiar to everybody. So everybody knows Netflix, everybody can stream, everybody knows how to work their remote, hopefully, maybe not my mom. Um sorry <laughs> mom. And they just added one new thing, which is that you can choose your way through this text. Nothing about the story was, you know, novel or a bombshell, you know, nothing else. It was just you can stream, you can ch- choose the way this text goes. And that made it, you know, it was a huge hit. Lots of people saw it. Lots of people talked about it. It, You know, it had all the articles in The Guardian and all of this, but not because it was avant-garde, because it was a story that just tweaked things just enough that you wanted to play with them. And I will say it's not the only one that Netflix does. Mostly Netflix does these things with kids' television. Oh, really? Yeah. They do a lot of interactive kids' shows, or at least more than they do with adults, because kids don't have that resistance and kids are you know, the modern generation expects that they're going to interact with their texts. I mean, mm. if you've ever seen a kid walk up to a, a old TV and start tapping around on the screen right? because yeah. they expect it to work that way. Um, it's the same sort of thing.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So kids are going to grow up with this as an expectation for the rest of their lives.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, the, the story about Netflix doing this reminds me, I mean, it's a story that's been repeated over and over. Like the Macintosh computer came out in 1984 And none of the ideas were invented for the Macintosh. I mean, they grabbed them from other sources, but it's the first one to get in front of, you know, millions and millions of people. Yep. And yeah, it makes all the difference.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, you know, Charles Darwin wasn't the first guy to come up with the theory of evolution. He just, uh, he said it in a way that, that people would understand and he had the right timing, Mm -hmm. you know, and and a lot of, A lot of innovation in history is is that way. It's not necessarily were you the first to something, but was it the right time? Was it the right space? Was it the right environment for people to accept it and and go with it?
2: Did you have the right platform? Were you uh, not a woman in the wrong time uh, (laughs) discovering the thing and then your male colleagues take credit for it? Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Wait, this is the first I'm hearing. Has this been a problem? (laughs)
1: Oh... (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so uh, this is really interesting to me the the interaction between creator and the audience, and I wonder if you could talk about the uh, potential introduction of of anxiety in the in the part of an audience member.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, when you are doing a choose your own adventure, I'm always worrying like, am I making the right choice? So how does that play in? Are the is the storyteller is it incumbent upon them to consider that and and kind of decide where they want to heighten that tension for the reader or, you know, choose whether the reader gets to go back or not to choose something else? You know, is this a permanent choice for them? Mm -hmm. Uh, How does that play into the storytelling aspect?
1: that's a really interesting question. And it's one of the key sort of research questions that we keep exploring in this field over and over and over. So we talk about this continuum of engagement and immersion And just to pull them apart a little bit, when we're trying to make a differentiation here, we talk about engagement as that level of attention that you're paying to something when you're actively like playing a game, figuring out a puzzle, solving a problem, right? You know, if you're reading a mystery, you can read, you know how to turn pages, etc. But you're trying to figure out who done it. That's more engagement than immersion, which is immersion is this notion that the story is so good and so compelling or the experience is so good and so compelling that the actual mechanism by which it's delivered falls away. You're at Pemberley with Darcy and Lizzie Bennet to the point, you know, you don't see the sun go down and that you're now reading in the dark or that you're in a movie theater and the exit light is too bright, whatever it is, or that people are eating popcorn around you. And so we talk about games as having this high engagement level, but not terribly immersive. You're always kind of aware that you're clicking A, B, A, B, or what? I don't know. The last time I played a console game was the Nintendo NES. Um, (laughs) And so you have this thing with digital fiction and interactive stories where we know that that engagement of knowing that there are multiple paths does create that anxiety have I picked one? And it pulls them out of the immersion, right? Hmm. If you become aware of the environment that, that the narrative is being delivered on, you're not immersed in the story anymore. So that is definitely something that is a consideration. And I think it goes back to comparing digital fiction to more, I hate to say passive media, but but it's easy to understand passive media like films or plays or novels as something that, you know, it doesn't change according to, you know, it's the same book whether you read it uh, yesterday or tomorrow or 20 years from now. Now, that's not accounting for the cognitive changes in you as you have different mm. experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the same text and you know it's always gonna be the same. And so you can, you know, the mechanism doesn't call itself to you. So that anxiety is always there and it's something that we as authors think about a lot. And it has a lot to do with audiences' familiarity with interfaces. Right now, all the digital interfaces, in digital fiction at least, are fairly novel. When we introduce like undergraduate classes to hypertext fiction, they want it to read like a prose story. And the fact that it doesn't means they have a poor reaction to it. So I introduce these types of stories to my students in year one. By the time they're third years, which in UK undergraduate programs, they're only three years long. By the time you get to third years, they're starting to come to me and give me these texts and go, this is really cool. Look at this, you know, could you use this somehow. So The novelty is off-putting in some cases because of the expectations you have going in. Because you expect it to be like prose or you expect it to be like film and it isn't, then you're dissatisfied. Whereas once you're used to it, once you're an experienced reader... You're like, yeah, yeah, fine. I know that I can come back to these links or that's just part of it or it's never going to end. It's only going to end when I decide it ends. Whatever it is, you're like, yeah, cool, whatever. It doesn't bother you anymore. So it's a familiarity thing. And because digital fiction doesn't have one set form and it keeps trying to do new things, we're going to have that for a while. And we may always have that with new stuff. But it, as I think as we become more familiar with it, that that anxiety will fade away a bit.
2: That's fascinating.
0: Well, and kids growing up with it, uh, perhaps we'll have less.
1: Yeah, it, it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, it's been interesting. I've been teaching this stuff for 12 years now. And when I first started teaching it, all the conversations were about, but it's not a book, but I love books, but it's not, you know, it's 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 not as much fun. I don't like it. And now it's, they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, so many students now will just come to me and say, oh, it's more like fan fiction, where I can, you know, I can participate, I can choose the stories I want to read. I can, you know, I can say I don't like that fan fiction writer's take. I'm going to go with this one. And so I think that there are different areas where we're starting to see it happen already, where people feel like they should have ownership and agency in the text that they experience.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's, it seems like immersion is the goal for any type of storyteller digital or uh, as you said passive media there's the immersion aspect allows i think that may be that one element that increases empathy in people Mm -hmm. and even teaches them about themselves. So when we experience story, we're kind of practicing empathy, practicing walking in somebody else's shoes. But then there's also that element of what would I do in this situation? You know, the character makes this choice uh, in a passive media, and maybe I wouldn't make that choice. But in digital stories, you get to decide for yourself sometimes whether you would do something or not. And that would teach you about yourself, which means that stories are this you know, sort of developing media for, I don't know, teaching people to self-analyze and discover who they are. That is so cool.
1: It's really interesting you say that, because that was actually a secondary finding in that research project that we did on the Reading Digital Fiction project, um, where we asked people, you know, which link they were going to click and, and why they were clicking it and how they felt about the link afterward. Um I wrote the story for that study and it came from one of my short stories and I ad- it, it was always it worked really well in a digital medium but it was told in second person and a little bit like this precedes the book and TV show you mm. but it was a little bit like that in that the short story was in first person perspective and the hypertext was in second person perspective which is more the norm for games and and digital fiction and the protagonist is not a sympathetic character. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it was really interesting to us to analyze the way that the readers talked about their choices. If it was a choice that they didn't have a problem with morally, they would say, I, I chose this. You know, I chose to go investigate, or I chose to click on this, or I chose to, to see what was happening. If it was a choice where they were starting to feel like, it was a moral choice they wouldn't have made themselves. They would say the character or he or she, or, you know, he, he, I'm going to make him do this, or I'm going to punish him. Mm. And it was really fascinating to see how even linguistically they distanced themselves from that character that they didn't want to empathize with or reflect in their own way of speaking.
2: That is so cool. (laughs) I saw you and it's really interesting how that show plays with, you know, sympathizing with the quote unquote villain and uh, trying to blur those lines between like knowing what we would do and what we wouldn't. And yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. I think, I think
1: you is a, is a fantastic case study for narratology because it wasn't too long ago when the idea of an entire novel in second person perspective was just crazy. No one would have told you to do it much less with an unsympathetic character like that so it's I mean clearly people found sympathy with him yeah uh, which is disturbing
2: well and it's getting more popular I think Or there are at least uh, more excellent examples of it in novels like I think N.K. Jemisin has A novel that's in second person and it works really really well but you have to be a pretty accomplished writer to do it you have to know enough of the conventions to get out of your own way and let the story tell itself um, so that you're not uh, breaking that as Brent reminded me before the show the willing suspension of disbelief because as soon as the reader the experiencer starts thinking about how something is is being told then they're not immersed in the story anymore as you were saying Lyle.
1: Absolutely, and second-person perspective is one of the most difficult, you know, narratively to deal with because it's so intimate. And yet, interestingly, mm-hmm. it is the standard, it is the most common convention in games. You know, if you go back to text adventure games, they're almost all second-person perspective. So that thing where, you know, when we use it in games, we want the player to... To put themselves in that role. And that's the entire reason we use the you perspective. And in Mm -hmm. the novel, you know, we've gone of this evolution of the novel as it's supposed to be mimetic, it's supposed to be, you know, originally, it was supposed to be something that, you know, you couldn't even write in present tense, because how would someone write in present tense and still be in the scene? You know, that sort of thing. That was considered very unnatural. And now we're seeing present tense all over the place and second person emerging this way. And, you know, we're borrowing from different media and different familiarities and being able to do some cool stuff in our existing or old or traditional media or analog media because we're getting audiences that know different ways of seeing things.
2: Technology is probably helping a lot with all of this. Like Mm -hmm. when you have digital storytelling, you are able to blur those lines between different mediums. So it's not that uh, you know novels are siloed and film is siloed and we can combine all of these things and that I think just opens up this brand new toolbox for storytellers, you know. It's not necessarily about how you're telling the story and you have to tell it using specific conventions. It's what story do I want to tell and how do I best get that across?
1: Absolutely. One of the the things I came across and one of the things I found for my PhD work was the more you immerse yourself as a creator in different media, the more that you will find yourself able to parse out what story belongs in what medium. And I struggled initially in my PhD. The first, because it was a, I did creative practice for part of it. And my idea was that I would write a novella and then I would adapt that to digital fiction. And it worked great for the first chapter and it fell on its feet. for the second chapter. Because the second chapter's character and situation was very digital. And I tried to write it out all in prose. And I hated it. It was awful. I had to Mm -hmm. let it sit for four months. It was the worst. Yeah. And then when I said, fine, I will try something digital with it. It just came out like uh, a house on fire. Uh, And I went, Oh, well, so this was never really meant to be a prose piece. This was meant to be a digital piece. And and so part of what I I teach is finding the right medium for a story. You know, just as we find the right voice, we find the right uh tense and and tone, we we need to find the right medium now because we can. It's it's not as expensive as it used to be to write in different media. So we might as well use the one that best suits the story.
0: What are some of the characteristics that might make something more more appropriate for digital versus prose?
1: Interesting. So, I'm going to go to the creative project that I'm working on now. It helps that it was envisioned to be this way, but what I'm experimenting now is putting hypertext stories in ebooks that you can read on e-readers. And so you don't just read a novel on the e-reader, you have links within it that go to different places within the novel. And this is what I was talking about with Bandersnatch, which is just a little bit of innovation in a familiar environment. And the bonus to this is that, unlike most digital fiction, ebooks already have a path to market. We expect to pay for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, that's uh, another element of my research is, is publishing. So, the premise behind the story is the same woman, but with seven different alternate histories. So, I took seven points in. The history of the 20th century and said, okay, what if that didn't happen? How would it change the world? And thus, how would it change the character? So there are seven different storylines, seven different worlds, and they're all set across parallel times. So it's all set in the present and across the same time span. So you basically got a stacked narrative where, you know, you got character one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and they're all stacked on top of each other. And if you don't like the first character you can choose to pop into another character's story and go you know what i'm really sick of this and this came from how much i disliked game of thrones <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because there's so many characters i couldn't tell all the old white guys apart <laughs> and all i really wanted was daenerys and uh whew, i can't remember everybody's name Arya. And, um, Mm -hmm. the character that Peter Dinklage played, and then I could do without the rest of them. I was like, I don't care about the rest of it. And I wanted to be able to choose to say, Mm -hmm. great, you can have the rest of the old white guy war stuff. And I just want these characters story. And so Mm -hmm. it was, it's a very simple thing to do with digital fiction. You know, it's not very complex as just choose your own path through the story, but I wanted to be able to do it in a way that isn't your basic choose your own adventure sort of thing where it's character based rather than plot based. The story I was talking about in my PhD that, that didn't work when I tried it in prose was because that character communicates through Twitter and blog and social media. And when I tried to write it out as prose, nothing functioned. When I said, mm-hmm. fine, I will write her Twitter feed. It was great because it was absolutely how that character was envisioned. So there are lots of things, you know, you can have something where I see a lot of my students like to play with the idea of choice, you know, that you can choose one way or the other. And because as creative writers, we tend to go, okay, well, I'm writing a prose piece, the story can only work out one way, and they don't consider all the other options. Whereas mm-hmm. you sit them in front of a tool like twine, which is really great for storytelling and thinking non-linearly they can suddenly think of lots of different ways their story can go and lots of different alternatives. That's sort of the kind of thing that that lends itself to digital media, which is, you know, there's more than one opportunity, there's more than one path, there's more than one way to skin the cat, as it were. And the digital media just allow you to play it out that way.
2: That's so great. And I think it behooves us to break some of the narrative traditions, because for so long, the Popular stories or the commercial stories were dominated by whoever was in power at the time. And if we can break away from those modes of storytelling in some ways, maybe that. Will encourage more diverse voices too. You know, publishing has mm-hmm. this big problem right now. There's there's not enough diverse voices. Um, you know, most of the people who work in publishing are of a specific demographic. And the more we can branch out and and say there's not just one path to telling a story. There's not just one path to success. Uh, maybe that can give people more opportunities to um, break into something like digital storytelling, where everyone you know has access to some form of that. Like you can, well, not everybody, but you can get get on the internet and uh, hopefully share your story that way.
1: Absolutely. We've already seen it in Twine. So I don't know if you know the history of Twine as a platform. Twine is this online tool specifically created to create digital fiction, to create hypertext fiction or text adventure games. Um, It kind of goes either way. And it's free. It's open source. It's online. Chris Klimas created it in 2009. And it put it out on the internet. People had a little bit of fun with it and it kind of languished and he almost stopped developing it. And then an indie game developer named Anna Anthropy sort of discovered it and did some really cool things with it and convinced other people who were fed up with AAA games, which is a little bit like publishing in that it's a very limited demographic, but it's far more male dominant, you know, cishet male. Mm -hmm. And obviously that, you know, after Gamergate, we know that it's got problems and Ananthropy promoted it for indie game developers. And after 2012, you just see this surge of LGBTQ, just marginalized voices, religious minorities, people of color, writers of color, um, people who couldn't find their voice in other arenas could write mm-hmm. very personal stories in Twine and put them out there and share them with one another. And so it became this tool for marginalized voices. And it was brilliant. And there's still amazing stories to be had there. But I think that that definitely illustrates just what you were talking about, which is the opportunity for these voices that we haven't had before to be heard.
2: And hopefully paid for it eventually. (laughs) I mean, that's the goal, right? (laughs) that's,
1: That's the thing that I run a... A small press called wonderbox publishing and i've actually just uh, pulled the trigger on building a platform for self-publishing and selling digital fiction so hopefully there will be something emerging within the next few months
0: oh that's great news very cool
2: Yeah, as a storyteller, thank you for doing this work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. Let's see. Let's hopefully I hang on to my job so that I can pay for the website to go up. Uh, You know,
0: uh,
1: nothing's ever free, but um, it's something that I've I've wanted to do and been talking about doing for a really long time.
0: So, yeah. Well, we like to end these shows when we can by talking about cats and dogs. I think you've got a Uh, few of them. I noticed on your blog. You said
1: you wanted to end the show, or are we going to talk now for another? Three or four hours Um, about cats and dogs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So usually we shoot for a half an hour. I don't mind if it, we've gone for almost an hour now. So I'm thinking about wrapping up unless, you know, I could take a nap while you guys continue. (laughs) I can
2: talk about cats and dogs for hours. Let's do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I saw saw a picture uh, you had posted of a very lovely dark charcoal gray tabby with Mm -hmm. some coppery bits. Uh, is that moose that's moose yep uh-huh.
1: he is my constant companion we we adopted him summer last year we have two girl cats thelma and esme and they are mighty huntresses and they are tiny
0: mm.
1: uh, in fact mm. thelma we were convinced that she was a kitten when we got her and she absolutely was not she's just that tiny and moose is the opposite so we chose his name after uh, Sam Winchester on Supernatural. No. <laughs> so he is he is moose and quite often moocifer.
0: Uh Moosifer, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I live in the UK, so I grew up in New Mexico, which you would never have an outdoor cat, you know, unless it was a feral or a barn cat or something, because coyotes would eat it. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. the UK, there's really nothing that predates on cats. So they're all outdoors cats was I've I've had to get used to but Moose is indoor cat by choice. Mm. We do have a, a pet door and he absolutely will not use it. He says he lives inside and it is warm and there's food there and why would he ever go out there? <laughs>
0: What a good kitty.
2: (laughs) Yeah, my cat's the same. We've got a big uh, XL dog door for my dog and uh, the cat just won't use it, which is great for me because I want an indoor only cat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was thinking, I mean, we adopted Moose because I lost one on the road. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe I should get a special needs cat, like a blind cat or something where they need to stay inside. And Moose just Mm -hmm. by choice (laughs) stays where it's safe.
0: Do you have dogs, too? I thought yep. I saw about two dogs. dogs.
1: I have, my oldest is 16. We brought her to Wales with us from States. So mm-hmm. she's a New Mexico dog by birth, and she does not think that the rain and the cold are all that great. Mm-hmm. So any on, on our rare sunshiny days, you will find her out sunning herself outside mm-hmm. in the sun or in the winter in front of the fire. And then we have Newt, whose full name is... Newton Tiberius Falcor, which is what happens when two geeks name things and can't agree on one name <laughs> mm-hmm. and he's a dog that we adopted from a, a rescue that got him from Spain so they're all farm critters now because we have a small farm in North Wales and they oh, have a good time running around
0: oh what fun to be on a farm with a bunch of animals yeah.
1: <laughs> it's it's the it's heaven <laughs> it's absolute yeah. paradise yeah, I
0: believe it yeah when when it's not too awful to go outside well yeah that (laughs) Uh, well we're here in seattle so we know exactly what that is like
1: yep very similar weather
2: it's my favorite kind of weather it's all i ever want i don't need sunlight
1: (laughs) you know i me too i like it i like it gray and mild and sometimes dark
2: Mm -hmm. Mm. yep that's a good mood Mm -hmm. it does
0: (laughs) You, you can't see me, but I'm crying right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do like a little more sun, but I'll be all right.
1: Well, my, my partner's from the tropics, so he struggles a little bit in the winter here. Mm. But uh, he misses the sun, so you have an ally.
0: But uh, if Wales is anything like Seattle, the uh, springs and summers make up for it.
1: Like yeah, the, the, the one the week world. where we have summer is, is pretty glorious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It never really gets above 75 degrees here.
0: In Seattle, it starts reliably July 5th and lasts for a week.
2: <laughs> uh, they're getting kind of longer. Since I moved up here, I think I brought the California curse with me or something. Because mm. the summers have been longer and very sunny. I think the weather, uh, there, the temperature has gotten up to, you know, like California levels sometimes will mm. be in the high 90s. Mm. And I'm like, why, why am I here? Do oh, I need to move farther north?
0: Yeah. I'm fine with it. <laughs> Something's got to, I mean, I I feel the dampness on the inside of my bones. So I need oh. a few 90 degree days to
1: bake God, it out. God, I hope that yeah. doesn't happen here. <laughs> they don't have air conditioning here. So I'm really hoping temperatures don't get that high here.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. yeah a lot of places in Seattle don't have air conditioning either. Uh, none of the rental yeah. houses I've stayed in have, mm. have had
0: it. All right. Well, Thanks, Lyle. How can people find you on the web? Absolutely. Um, my
1: website is It's uh, I'm, I'm, oh. I have a weird name, so I'm eminently
0: Googleable. Easy to find. Cool. <laughs> and of course, that will be in the show notes, and people can just click on it even. Fab. I'd also like to thank Annette for being an awesome co host for this show. Thanks so much, Annette.
2: Thanks for having me again. This is really fun.
0: I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. And especially, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you. Music.